0: How are we doing? Yeah. Awesome. And it's good to be with you guys. If we have not had the opportunity to meet, my name is Brian Herring. I serve as one of the pastors here at Spanish River. And it is good to be with you this morning. It is good to be here. It is refreshing and reviving to my soul. I'm going to be honest with you, man. The last month and a half to two months have been hard here at Spanish River. Particularly for those of us that have been on staff. I know for a number of you it has been as well about a month and a half ago six seven weeks ago that things got kind of turned up on their head when we thought hey we're in the clear we've made it our senior pastor is here full-time our executive pastor is good man we got our staff coming together this is great and then all of a sudden everything started to happen with David going to the hospital with Ron going into the hospital and there were moments in those early weeks where it was just like man I was I was really questioning a lot of stuff if I can be honest And I was like, God, I know you're good in all of this, but I'm failing to see it. I'm failing to understand it. See, here's one of the blessings about Spanish River and where we live. We are a highly educated, driven, and affluent congregation. And those are all blessings. And they're things that we should celebrate. But there is very little that we as a people and we as a church cannot accomplish by working harder, by giving more, By coming together. We can do a lot. We can plant a ton of churches. We can provide aid to a ton of uh, places in the world that are hurting. But here's, here's the detriment or the danger in that is that we begin to think, you know what, God? We got this. We can build this church. We can do it. We can sing good enough. We can preach well enough. We can gather people better than others. And we can do it. And you know what God did? God brought us to a point as a staff and a church that said there's no amount of money, there's no amount of willpower or we'll get it done attitude that could solve our problem. And in humility and in prayer, we fell before the throne of God and said, you alone can handle this. And God showed up people And God brought revival to this church. Not revival in some evangelical sense, like a southern tent, you know, revival service, but a biblical sense of revival where he poured out literally his Holy Spirit upon us as a staff and us as a people and brought healing and restoration and joy. And I saw the joy. And I saw it last week when David walked out. I'm sorry he's not here this week. You got me. But... I saw the joy last week when he came out here and people were standing up. That was a revival of God's spirit on this place and this this people. Man, I wish I could tell you that that was the Christian walk all the time, right? I wish I could tell you that there was joy ever flowing for the believer. But any of you in this room that have been a Christian for longer than a month know that that is not the case. Man, there are seasons of dry patches where reading the Bible is like licking, licking dust and trying to pray is like drinking sand. And there's these moments of despair and hardship and we are in need of revival. We're in need of the joy that we experienced on our first, first repentance and turning to the cross. And Psalm 85, where we find ourselves today, is that for us Christians, it's that, it's that for those of you who find yourselves in this dry season in your walk, in this hardship season of your walk, Psalm 85 is a prayer that we get to pray and remind ourselves and call on the divine grace that is afforded to us to sense once again the revival of God's spirit in our hearts. So open, please, Psalm 85. We're gonna read through this together. It's 13 verses and we're gonna take our time and briefly walk through it together it will show up on the screen both behind me and to the sides but I encourage you because I'm going to go back and reread through it as we as we walk through it together so follow along on your phone follow along in your Bible this is the word of the Lord recorded in the Psalms verse or chapter 85 1 through 13 Lord you were favorable to your land you restored the fortunes of Jacob you forgave the iniquity of your people you covered all of their sins you withdrew all your wrath you turned from your hot anger here it is restore us again O God of our salvation and put away your indignation towards us will you be angry with us forever Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him That glory may dwell in our land Steadfast love and faithfulness meet Righteousness and peace kiss each other Faithfulness springs up from the ground And righteousness looks down from the sky Yes, the Lord will give what is good And our land will yield its increase Righteousness will go before him And make his footsteps away The word of the Lord Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, may your spirit join us in this room this morning. Lord, may you revive those who find themselves in seasons of dryness and despair. Lord, would you restore to us again the joy of our salvation. May you give a right standing of us before you. Heavenly Father, speak to us this morning. Encourage us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. This this psalm, most commentators believe, is actually written by a poet as, they, as the Israelites are coming back to the land of Israel after their time in Babylon. So this is after they've been taken away, those Jews from the tribe of Judah and Benjamin are coming back into the land from exile. And so they're coming into literally a dry land, a desolate land. Jerusalem's walls are destroyed. This is the time of Nehemiah and Ezra and the rebuilding of the temple and the walls of, of Jerusalem. And there's this call for revival. And he opens up this call for revival with what? Not recounting past glories, but past mercies. The first three verses of this psalm, most commentators, but one in particular that I remember reading, said that these three verses are probably the most beautiful display of forgiveness found in all of Scripture. And so as we read these, it's important for us to realize that that this, this poet is, again, I want, I want us to understand this. He's not looking back at the past glories of Israel. He's not recounting the kingdoms of David and Solomon. He's not recounting the, the wonders of Moses and the exodus out of Egypt. But instead, what he's doing is he's reminding himself of God's mercies. And why would he do that? Because here's, here's why he does it. Because when we remind ourselves of God's mercies and graces in our lives, it drives us to our knees in prayer. See, when we, when we focus instead on what? On the past glories and wonders of our lives. What that is, is nostalgia. It's what psychiatrists call rosy retrospection. And it's actually a psychological term. And what it is, is it's when we think more positively of the past than we do of the present. Right, This was your grandfather back in the day. Well, kids in my day, they respected their elders, right? Yeah, no, they didn't. <laughs> this is every parent with adult children that tells you, oh, family vacations were the best with young kids. We had the greatest times at Disney. No, you didn't. How, how quickly you forget. You do not go on a vacation with young kids. As Eric Blythe says, you go on a trip. They, no. No, I'll remind you of what vacations with young kids looks like. They get sick and they fight and they whine the whole time. And you're sitting there in line at Disney thinking, I've made a horrible life decision. (laughs) But with these rosy glasses, when we look back, we say, oh, but that was the best time. That was the best time. The Romans actually had a phrase for this as well. Not to be outdone by David last week. I am going to quote Latin. Memoria praetorium bonorium. Yeah, and it's real actually. It translates the past is always well remembered. The past is always well remembered. When we camp out in dreams, what it does is it reveals idols. Your dreams, and I've heard this before as well, your religion is what you do with your solitude. So when you're alone, when you when you're have time to just daydream, what do you daydream about? Because typically that will reveal an idol in your heart. Because what you're saying is, oh man, if I had this promotion, if I got this contract, if I, if I married this person, if, if, if my kid could accomplish this, if I could retire here or move here. If I could vacation, right, the list goes on and on. When those dreams are constantly going in our head, it reveals something that we think in our hearts will bring about true happiness, will bring about true security, will bring about true fulfillment in our lives. Fulfillment, security, peace, that can only be afforded to us by God through Jesus Christ. But in our minds and in our daydreams, we think, oh, if I could have that, yes. I mean, God's great, but that's where it's really gonna end up. And for the poet, he's he's sparing himself these rosy colored glasses, right? Rosy retrospection. He's he's saying no to nostalgia. And he's saying, no, no, no. I can't focus on what was and the glories. No, I need to focus myself on the forgiveness and the mercy that I have been afforded by God. He says this in verses one through three. You were favorable. There's six you phrases here. And David talked about this last week, Pastor David. He doesn't say he was favorable to our land and he restored the fortunes of Jacob. No, this is a personal interaction. This is you, God. It's not he, it's you. If you remember that from last week and if you did not get a chance to hear David's uh, sermon last week on Psalm 23, I encourage you. SpanishRiver.com slash watch. It was an incredible message. But he talks about that. This is a personal This is somebody who's walked through the valley and they're reminding themselves of God's favorability, restoration, forgiveness. The word favorable there actually is, is, it it conjures this idea of delight. Last night I spoke to a dad uh, after the Saturday service and he told me, he was bragging on his son. He said, you know, so many children will point to their mother and their father as bringing them to faith. But he said, I... I have my son to point to for bringing me to faith. And he just started bragging on his son. There was this this joy, this delight in his face when he talked about his son. And that's what the favorability is here in verse one. There is a, a delight that God has. You have delighted in your land and your people. You have restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave. Forgiveness here is this act of lifting off, of removing And iniquity is guilt, much more so than sin. The term iniquity, when you read that in the Psalms, is greater than just sin. It's the guilt associated with sin as well. It's the consequences and the devastation that sin carries with it. And he says, look, you have forgiven, you have lifted off like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. The weight has been lifted off of his back. You have covered all of their sins, not just covered, but forgotten. Like a flood that fills a plain, you can no longer see the ground. God's forgiveness has covered our sin and we see it no more. He sees it no more. And then you withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Not only is our sin forgotten by God, but he turns from his wrath and anger. A justifiable wrath and anger that God has towards a people who have rejected him and run after false gods and idols. God is a perfect, holy, righteous being. And our sin against him is cosmic treason, worthy of death, death that is physical, yes, but death that is spiritual and ultimately eternal in hell. And while the Israelites have experienced that wrath in the exile when they were taken to Babylon, he is reminding them, no, it didn't last forever, but God, even your wrath was abated. And so he takes time, he says, for revival to happen, I need to remind myself of the forgiveness and the mercies and the graces that I have received, not past glories, And then he continues on going, going into this, looking at past uh, goodnesses, he now needs and understands that it is only divine works of God and his grace that will bring about the revival he needs. Look at verse four through nine, restore us again, O God, and put away your indignation towards us. He asks these three rhetorical questions, right? Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? No, he knows the answers to these. Um, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Of course. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, because what God speaks, he does. For he will speak peace, shalom, to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in their land. So there's this this understanding that the poet has where he says in verse four, look, for revival to happen, and he he lays this out in his questions and in his answers, this is something that I cannot accomplish. In order for revival and renewal and an outpouring of the spirit to happen, God, it it will be you alone that makes this happen. But back to what I talked about at the opening before I read the Psalm, that's not how we operate. You and I operate with a sense that, man, there's very little that we can accomplish. And we, we, we buy and we sell and we live lives that are based on this idea of conditionality, right? You and I operate in a world of conditionality. I provide a service on the condition that what? I get paid. Or I pay you, what, under the condition that a service is provided, Hey, I'm going to pay you teach my kid math. Hey, I'm going to pay you fix my car. Hey, I'm going to pay you. Let me have the food. But we do the same thing with relationships oftentimes as well. Hey, Hey, I helped you out in that move. I'd like to, I'd like to call in that favor. How many of you who own your own businesses, when people can't pay, you've just got favors all the time that you get to call in for people. People in construction know that well, but we do that all the time. Hey, I've shown kindness and favor to you and I am, I'm expecting likewise in return. And we'll take that sense of conditionality and why we struggle with grace so much is because we expect the same out of God in our faith. We would never say it outright. We understand that we're saved by grace alone. But we oftentimes can carry this conditionality into our experiences and into our faith and into our relationship with God. Where we say, God, man, I'm showing up, I'm giving. I read through all of Leviticus last week, throw me something, right? And we're like, why is he holding out? Or, or, or here's what's worse, and I think this is what happens to us more often than not. When we find ourselves in those seasons, it becomes the opposite. We're dry, we're depressed, we're desolate. And we're like, man, I, I, again, again, Lord, I, I failed again. I've sinned in this same way again. I, I have not been consistent in this. I, Lord, I've done nothing to earn your love in this and I'm not doing any, and we start beating ourselves up and we fall into this place where we begin to doubt, is God good? And we begin to doubt, does God love me? And we begin to doubt, is salvation real to me? And that divine act of grace needs to be prayed for and needs to be reminded of in our soul like the psalmist is doing here. In Exodus chapter 12, the first Passover meal takes place. And God has visited Egypt with these nine incredible plagues that displayed his power and his might constantly as Moses is telling Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he says, no. But finally, this 10th plague comes, this 10th plague, which is a promise that the angel of death will descend on Egypt and will kill the firstborn of every house. But Moses and Aaron instruct the people And they they give them the Passover meal, but in addition to that, they are to take the blood of a lamb and do what? But to sprinkle it and smear it on the doorposts of their homes. And any house that has the blood of the lamb smeared across the doorposts will be spared and will be shown grace and salvation and death will pass over that house. So imagine you have two men in the waning hours of that day and they're painting their, their doorposts with the blood of freshly killed lambs and the one is joyous. The one is like, can you imagine this? He's like, this is incredible. Getting to listen to Moses and Aaron and seeing all that God has done. I cannot believe that he's gonna spare us from this. We're gonna get out of here. This has gotta be it, right? And the guy next to him with sweat beating down his brow. I said, man, I don't know. I don't know, man. I mean, I, I have been anything but faithful to God, I have been anything but consistent. I have grumbled against Moses with the best of them. And man, I, this is freaking me out. Do you see how many frogs there were last week? Like, this, this, this is beyond, man, I really hope this works. I, I'm doing, I, look, I believe Moses, but I'm scary. Let me ask you this. When the angel of death descended on Egypt that evening, whose home did salvation and grace show up to? Both of them. Both were shown grace. Both were shown salvation. Because grace and salvation was never tied to the level of their faith or the execution of their religion and faith, but solely on the blood of the lamb that was spread across the door. Men and women of the church Your salvation hinges nothing on what you have done or what you will do or can do, but solely on the blood of the lamb that was shed on the cross, Jesus Christ himself, who as your substitute took death and sin and God's wrath and judgment in an act of ultimate love, which is then freely offered. So what do we bring? We bring our sin, we bring our brokenness, we bring death. And God says, I will take that and give you life to those who repent of their sin and come to him again. Part of renewal is exactly that. I think people think revival and renewal is all the joy. No, part of revival and renewal is being reminded of your sin. But not that you are placed in, a, in an area of guilt, but instead of liberation and a reminder of what Christ has accomplished for you on the cross not because of anything that you have done or can do or will do, but solely a divine act of grace afforded to those who repent of their sin and turn to Jesus and understand that his death paid the penalty for your sin, but his resurrection ultimately conquers death. And the closing of this is this beautiful chiastic covenantal structure. Look at verses Ten and eleven, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Chiasm is a Hebrew form of poetry that typically works where you have bookends and then they mirror each other to a central point. I had an Old Testament professor in a seminary that beautifully illustrated how all of redemptive history from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation is a chiastic structure that mirrors itself and centers on, the center, uh, centers on Jesus Christ. But chiasm is used throughout the Psalms. And here we have a small, small picture of a chiastic structure in this Psalm. And what it is, is it's a picture of God's covenant with his people. So if you look at the bookends, it's steadfast love and it's peace. So in God's covenants and how he he works out promises with his people, this is the blessing of God's covenant with his people. I will provide steadfast love. I will bring you shalom are the blessings of the covenant. But what's the center part of that chiasm? It is faithfulness and it is righteousness. Those are the requirements of the covenant. So the requirements sit on the inside. We will be faithful. We will serve you and you alone. There will be no other gods but Jehovah, but Yahweh. And the blessings of those covenantal promises upheld are steadfast love and peace. But here's the tension. Here's the tension for the psalmist. And here's what he is yet to see fully realized in the Jesus Christ who would come. Verse 11 does what? Verse 11 shows us, I believe, a picture of Jesus where it says that faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. It's a marrying of the responsibilities and the blessings of the covenant. It's a marrying of heaven and earth. And where do earth and heaven meet? But in the God-man himself, Jesus Christ. Shalom is offered to you. Peace is offered to you. Forgiveness is offered to you. Grace is offered to you. Revival is poured out anew to you through the finished work of God himself in human form, the Christ Jesus And so we can say with him, yes, the Lord is good. And our land, our church, our faith will yield its increase and righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Are you dry in your faith? Are you desolate? Pray Psalm 85 in the morning. Pray Psalm 85 in the evening. And remind yourself over and over again of the graces that you have been afforded in the past. Remind them of your present and call on the Spirit to revive afresh within you.